0: When I come into the Dharma Hall, I'm very much moved to take a moment to just acknowledge the the rupa, the uh, image of the Buddha that we have here. And uh, when giving a talk, I like to do the formal three bows that the tradition has used as a way of expressing respect to what this represents. The Buddha is a human be- was a human being who awoke. And what he awoke to transformed him and transformed our lives because we would not be here without his awakening. Rodney mentioned a few days ago the resolution that he made to sit down on the spot of his awakening and i'd like to share the particular words that he used at the time because i find them very moving and powerful of course they're not the actual words but a translation of what was recorded that he described as his words at the time he said i will not move from this spot until I have realized that which may be realized by human endeavor. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this spot. And there's something about that that I find just touches me. And in a way that's delightful, in fact, the wholeheartedness of that commitment commitment, and the, the power and the passion in those words. And the Buddha got up from that spot, having realized that which may be realized by human <coughs> endeavor. the heart of the Dharma that the Buddha offered to us and to this world, to the many generations of people such as ourselves who have listened to and practiced his teachings, who have realized the heart of what he offered and shared it through the centuries. This is something that is available to us. and by which we are remarkably blessed. The human endeavor that we can observe around us and, of course, within us, seeking happiness, peace, freedom, however we might describe that, we can see does not necessarily lead, much of the time, it seems, that which we seek. And the Buddha in his teaching pointed out and recognized and uh, pointed out that there is something underlying this process whereby we do not find or come to that which we seek. And he spoke to this, he pointed to this and spoke of ignorance or blindness, the uh, early translations mostly suggested ignorance though i think it's a slightly pejorative word for most of us Cultu- sort of enculturated as we are to believe we're supposed to be clever and i don't think ignorance really quite gets to the heart of what he meant but this factor avidya that he spoke of is the the basic factor in the arising of suffering and needs to be penetrated in order for suffering to be resolved. I translate it as blindness because although yes, it is ignorance, it is not seeing that which the Buddha saw, that is the cause of our suffering. Blindness, uh, in fact, video, vid. I think is this. I believe is the same root as uh, from the Indo-European languages, as uh, gives rise to the words like video and vision. Not seeing. A is a a negative. So not seeing. Avidya. Unawareness. Ignorance, we could say. This is the basis of the craving that drives us, that seeks us, that, that leads us seeking, searching, and drives us into clinging, attachment, and the suffering that arises for us when we grasp hold of those things that we have pursued. Not seeing avidya, not seeing the way things are, not seeing what it is that the Buddha saw and that the Buddha invited us to partake of in also seeing, in also realizing. So examining this condition, this experience, there's this current, there's this movement of desire and of longing that we encounter again and again and again. And in it, there's this inevitable sense of something that's other than or apart from where we are, that we're looking for. And yet we need to consider if this has not yet been revealed, we have not yet found what we're looking for, if the way in which we are looking in fact serves us. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, which some of you may know, and the character Nasruddin is a a Sufi teaching figure, although sometimes also attributed to the Hindu tradition, and he's both a wise man and a fool, it would seem though one imagines that perhaps his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. One day Nasruddin was on his hands and knees on the side of the road near his house in the evening under the streetlight looking through the rubble and the mess in that place. And a friend came along and said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazruddin said, I'm looking for my key. I've lost the key to my house. I can't get in to my home. Can you help me? And so the friend got down on his hands and knees and they were searching through the rubbish and the pebbles and the dust and the unsavory bits of not quite identifiable organic matter. And it's kind of, okay, and sort of. And after a while, with no success, the friend says to and He says, Mullah, Mullah, we've been looking really carefully. Are you sure? You lost your key out here. And looks at him and smiles. He says, I know, I lost it in my back garden, but the light's much better here. (laughs) The key that Nazarene is looking for, of course, the key to our true home, the place of rest and abiding where we habitually find ourselves seeking may appear to be where the light is best because it's that with which we are familiar and yet clearly that's not where nazareth lost his key and perhaps our situation is not so different than that so this condition and we can reflect on it we can contemplate it the sense of an underlying current of unease or restlessness that drives us, that pushes us in one way or form or another, that has within it, if we look, if, if we stop following it into activity, but we look and examine what it seems to be speaking to us of, what it speaks to us is a sense unquestioned of something missing, something lost, Something incomplete and desperately needed that somehow we need to find, locate, regain, or secure. And this compels us and drives us looking, searching, seeking, yearning. But it seems not finding. Some years ago, my wife Catherine and I were staying at a friend's house looking after it for them while they were away. And uh, while we were washing, I was in fact washing the dishes after we'd had a meal, the phone rang and I went to pick up the phone. And as I was talking to the person on the other end of the phone, I was just kind of habitually and I guess probably slightly nervously sort of fingering my wedding ring just sort of grabbing and holding that spot where I, some, which I sometimes do and what I noticed as I, I reached for that was that it wasn't there on my finger as I reached for it to kind of just sort of you know, play with it or whatever it is I do with it feel that soft shiny bit underneath it that's really smooth and I was talking on the phone and I just covered the mouthpiece for a moment I said, Catherine, don't tip the dishwater out and I finished the conversation, went and looked in the dishwater, thinking it must have come off while I was washing the dishes, and it wasn't there. And there was this sense of, oh my gosh, what have I done? Where could I have lost it? I said, Catherine, can you help me? I've lost my ring. Where is it? And we were looking around the house, and all the time there was this real sense of dread. It's like I was obviously really quite attached to this piece of metal when it was gone. And and I was feeling on my finger where it used to be that soft, shiny, smooth bit and the sense of grief and loss associated with that. Then at some point, as we were looking around the house and I was sort of holding the spot, Catherine looked at me carefully. She said, it's the other hand. <laughs> it's a true story. And I'd been... I've been feeling this place where it was missing and it was like, I I was so looking at this place where it was gone from that I could not see. It was there all along. So this movement, this drive, this Compulsion and propulsion that we find within us has an assumption within it. That something is missing, something is gone, something is lost. That I need to find. Or that something is just not okay the way it is that I need to fix. And of course the most obvious thing once we've realized that, well, it could be the world and maybe we need to fix that, but... <coughs> something wrong with this and boy does this need fixing and there's so much energy we can put into that so much effort and there's a of course a place for cultivating and developing the many beautiful and wholesome qualities we can cultivate learning to release ourselves from the habits and the patterns that can cause so much suffering for ourselves and others and and all of that, there's a, there's a real value to that. I'm not sort of wanting to negate that at all. In fact, as someone once said, he was, I think, making a somewhat sort of, a, I guess, a not too serious comment about someone he knew who'd been involved in spiritual practice for a long time. He said, you know, I wish he'd worked on himself a bit more before he accepted himself just as he is. <laughs> And I think we can recognize the validity of that concern with regard to others and likewise with regard to ourselves. So there is that process and that dimension of our practice, and it is important. And yet if we imagine that in that process we are somehow going to come to an end of this seeking or this sense of somehow something missing or something needing fixing, We're mistaken because at some level that process could be compared to rearranging the furniture in our prison cell. Or possibly we're getting ambitious and we're redecorating or very serious and we're actually renovating this thing. And we can make it a more comfortable, spacious, beautiful and useful place to live. All of which has its value but there's still a boundary around that of limitation and confinement if we are operating out of the assumption that this development growth and unfoldment is and of itself the complete resolution Because when we identify with this process as defining what we are, and the qualities and the capacities that we have or that we lack as defining what we are, we become bound in the process of becoming. <coughs> becoming bhava is the word the Buddha used. Becoming. This process whereby we somehow lock onto experience and take birth within it by the identification with it we become that and in becoming that in having taken birth we are inevitably bound for the death which is both the larger death we could understand if we have conceived and defined ourselves as this body that body's death will be the death we come to but Equally, in anything we take hold of, the birthing into that involves a dying when that changes and we are no longer able to hold on to it, define ourselves by it and somehow establish the sense of existence, substantiality, solidity or coherence that we imagine will resolve our dilemma we're not able to establish that in it having been born into it by identification with it that becoming is the cause of death of the dying of the ending if this is me and it changes then I must be dead and we resist that we struggle with that we suffer with this so we don't want it to change and yet in that attachment to roles, activities, particular qualities, although we get or try and and sometimes temporarily succeed through really not carefully examining it, we create for ourselves a sense of something substantial that we can rest in or rely on. In fact, in order to do that, we have to contract and tighten and pull in so deeply that it hurts us deeply and to the core. And despite how tightly we contract and how much effort and energy we put into that, imagining it will be our resolution, our release, our completion, life keeps moving through the grip that we exert upon it. And it's like rope burn. It's like we're holding on to something that despite how much force we have to apply, how tight we get, it pulls through the very fingers of our heart's grasp upon it. And what we experience is the friction and the burn as we could say the surface, the skin of our fingers gets taken off with rope burn. So too in the very core of our being we experience this abrasion and it's deeply painful. It's deeply painful. And we think that if I can just hold a bit tighter, it'll stop. But we can't hold that tightly. It's not possible. Because the nature of things keeps them moving through. Moving through. Moving through. And this is suffering. The attempt to lean on that unstoppable force, of unfolding life, of dynamic, changing, conditional experience and failing to hold it or arrest it. This suffering points us to the art that we are learning here above all, the art of non-dwelling, of not needing to take hold, land on, define ourselves by that which is moving through that which is arising to pass and understanding that whenever we do it this is suffering we begin to explore what it means to not to dwell in non dwelling to abide in no location to be located without needing anything to define that location, apart from the recognition of the locatedness that is this moment when we're conscious of it, in it, to it. And it's not even that we're conscious of it, it's just this is it, we're here, it's here. And in that beingness, we simply experience in arriving when we've released ourselves from the urgent unconscious drivenness that keeps pulling or pushing us towards something anything that must be better than this that sense of something's missing something's wrong and the whole hope that we invest in the future in the basis of finding that improved or finally resolved condition drops away into the sense of just this, just this. And in that arriving, we have the opportunity to really examine it. The arriving is is important in that sense of just relaxing and releasing that momentum, letting the momentum move away. It might just still be there, but it simply becomes an experience. When we're not Identifying with it, not believing that there is something missing, something wrong, something to be found, then it simply moves but doesn't take us with it. It's just another current, another wave, another energetic pattern or cycle playing out. And we can start to examine this phenomena of movement, of things unfolding. It's so attractive to us. It's so fascinating. It seems to be what all this is about, and yet it's not the whole picture. There are two aspects, we could say, to every experience, every moment, every every time this happens there's two things we could say that are taking place. One of which we tend to notice and one of which we don't. There is that which we tune into and because of how we tune into what I could or would say here perhaps is The foreground of our experience we don't notice the background when we come into a situation we notice what's moving much more quickly than we notice that which is not moving if you you come into a into a space and um, look you'll notice that which is moving but most quickly that's what we tune into very quickly If we look into the night sky on a clear evening what stands out is these shining points of light and we very quickly assemble them into images or shapes and you know we have the the big dipper here in the northern hemisphere and if you've ever been so fortunate to spend time in the southern hemisphere you'll maybe know scorpio this quite remarkable constellation that has the full shape of a scorpion you don't need to imagine it's actually all there the tail and the hook and the the two claws and the head it doesn't need any lines added to it it's a remarkable thing and when you see a constellation or even just a couple of bright ones together forming a line or a few more and a cross it's like our attention hooks into those particularities and configures them into something with meaning for us and it's like I'm looking at the night sky and what we mean is we're looking at the stars and yet somehow it's really easy if we don't stop a moment longer to fail to notice the immense inky blackness that's there that occupies 99 percent of what we're looking at but somehow doesn't grab us quite as quickly because it's not twinkling it's not shiny It doesn't make any interesting shapes or patterns that look like things we remember. (coughs) And yet if we stop and we just allow our attention to soften, not focusing on, not needing to look away, but not focusing on the stars or the light that's coming to us from the stars, there's something that happens that the mind just has to open out because it can't, really wrap itself around something that big it just it the mind just has to stretch and it's conceiving so easily grinds to a halt because you know we can't get our mind to think that kind of vastness it just doesn't work it's just like ah We couldn't see or distinguish or attribute any appearance or image or symbology to those stars without the blackness behind them. Likewise, when we look at the sky in the day, we see the clouds that move or the sun or the moon perhaps. Perhaps. And what we tend to notice is that. And not so much, unless it's a completely clear sky, do we notice then just the open space that's there. It's like we're not quite attuned to that. And in fact, interestingly, our sensory equipment, the means whereby we interface with the world, specifically... Only can register things that are moving. That's what it's for. And you may be familiar with the phenomena whereby if uh, there's a smell that arises, and you walk into a room and it's full of sort of sweaty bodies, it's kind of like, poo. You've had that happen? Maybe. And then if you stay there five minutes, ten, smells fine. Smell hasn't gone away. Because it's constant, we've stopped registering it. Or the common experience with sound is that we don't actually even know we're listening to a sound because it's just going on in the background and then suddenly it stops and we notice, oh, the refrigerator's gone off or the, the heating system at IMS. It's just stopped and there's a moment of, oh, like we even noticed that there was some subtle reaction in us to the sound but we'd stopped noticing the sound and we'd stopped noticing the reaction until the moment where it ends and it's, ah, whew. And scientists had noticed this and were curious because it doesn't, it's like most experiences that we have, if it's constant, unless it's extremely intense, in which case it tends to be sort of varying anyway, we tune them out. But there was some curiosity around the visual experience because it doesn't ever happen. Most people don't report, at least um, in normal circumstances, that they're looking at something and then suddenly it disappears because it hasn't changed. You know, we'd be a bit worried if that happened, wouldn't we? And so, examining carefully what was going on, they noticed that the eyeball is shimmering very quickly, left and right. Rapid eye movements are going on all the time. And so, the image that's being projected through the, through the pupil onto the retina, the sensory receptors at the back of the eyeball, is constantly shifting. It's constantly shifting. So that there is no steadiness of image in the back of our... Our mind knows, except when we've just woken up or we're a little bit dazed from something to stabilise it because it knows it's not really going like this. But you get dazed, you some, you strike your head or you just wake up and the first thing that's happening is... because that's actually the image that's coming in. And then the mind remembers, nope, steady that. So that's our experience. And they wanted to see, well, what would happen if it's stabilised? So, they built a miniature projector and mounted it on a contact lens. They put it on someone's eye so that it moved while the eye moved. And so the image in the back of the eye stayed in exactly the same place. And you know, they just projected an image into that person's eye. And after a few moments maybe it was a couple of minutes it just disappeared. And so they could conclude and understand that not just the other senses, but this one too, if the image stays constant, we can't register it. It's only because it keeps changing that we register it. There's something you might be wondering what that has to do with all of this, apart from being a kind of interesting thing to notice. It's like our sensory equipment eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind thinking mind, intellectual mind that receives the experiences of thoughts and images it's one of the sense doors in Dharma teachings these receptors can only receive sight, sound, smell, taste touch and thoughts and images if they're changing only experience which is changing is cognizable or sensible, you know, that we can sense it So we can't approach or before I go to there. So all things of our sensory system are oriented towards that which is moving for functional reasons and biological survival imperatives, all of which make good sense at that level. There's not a problem with that. But in terms of what we're most concerned with, this is not the equipment we can use to discover it. And it's a little bit like what happens when we go to the movies. I guess you've seen a few movies in your time. Probably a few here as well. And uh, interestingly, movies and the industry of producing stories in that manner is uh, so popular because it effectively uh, sort of reproduces what we generate internally so much of the time. But what actually happens when we go to a movie? We go into a dark room, and there's a screen. And onto that screen is projected a stream of light of different colours, organised into particular configurations and shapes. And at the same time as those lights are projected onto that screen, some vibrations are projected into the air around us, which we experience as sound waves. And what happens is, all that light that's reflected from the screen back to our eyes, we organize it in a way that becomes really important and meaningful to us. And some of these accumulations of color are the good ones. We like them. We're on their side. And some of them are the bad ones, and we don't like them. And these things that we're hearing in our ears appear to be coming from those good ones or those bad ones. Although they're not, they're coming from somewhere completely different usually on the side, and yet we get really drawn in. There's this whole thing going on where we're really concerned because the bad colours are after the good colours and <laughs> they've almost got them in a trap and we want to warn them, you know, look out! But of course we know, you know as our movies are, that mostly the good colours will you know, they'll come out on top and they'll maybe meet some other cute good colours and go off together. But there's this whole emotional process that goes on for us And we can believe it all because we forget that what's happening is this bunch of light being reflected to us off a screen because we can't see the screen. The whole thing is created to deceive us into forgetting that there's a screen there and this is purely a sort of physical phenomena of light and sound. If we could see the screen, if someone kept saying, look, it's just lights on a screen, we'd say, shut up. I'm trying to enjoy the movie. But gosh, it would save us a lot of angst, wouldn't it, in those scary movies? And yet, when we understand that, even though we can't see the movie screen, we can know that it's there because the light coming and the image coming towards us reveals it, although we can't see it. So when we practice, we are learning to soften that That way in which we instinctively attune to and orient towards that which is moving, that which is coming towards us, or equally that which is moving away from us. Despite the fact that that seems to make up the totality of what's happening from the point of view of our sensory equipment and our processing of all of that. And we can start to notice that there's, yeah, there's space around those experiences, that silence enfolds every sound. We could even begin to sense that sound is a, simply a manifestation of silence with form. It's not actually something different. Just as white light, which we can't see, contains within it all the colors, and it's only when we separate them out that we start to see things. It's only because part of the light is reflected to us that we see something. If it's all there, we don't see a thing. Likewise, all the phenomenal world of form is revealing something to us that we can't see because it's that which enables us To see it, we can't see the background. And yet, when we relax, that attempt to bring everything into sharp focus, something else starts to happen. And we start to sense and resonate and it's as if there's a, almost an organ that's not a sensory organ. that's not of the nature of those organs. And it's not an organ, but it's something nonetheless. And we could maybe call it our heart, although not in the literal sense of that word. We can recognize that there is something more though how we do that we cannot explain to ourselves but we can to sense that which is changing and equally that which is changeless what might that be for us Years ago, I was uh, practicing in a monastery in Budgaya, the, uh, the location of the Buddha's enlightenment. And the, the monastery there, I'd, I'd been the year before and very happy to be returning on retreat and sitting and walking, just as all of you have been doing here over these days. And one of the delights of this particular location I found was the uh, the small puppies who would live in the monasteries, who I just found my heart so... Touched and just loving these little creatures, and the monasteries are something of a refuge in many parts of Asia for the for the creatures whose lives are sometimes quite challenging in the in the in the the relative poverty and uh, harshness of the environment. So there's always puppies, it seems, and dogs, and not to mention cats and chickens and roosters and uh, occasionally donkeys and everything else in the monasteries. But uh, on this. Particular retreat. I was. I'd been practicing for probably about a week, similar to the length of time you have, and just really enjoying watching these puppies. Just feeling how much it was so easy to do meta for them, and they were just so full of life, and so, so, so just so wow. That you know, run along as you were doing really slow, mindful walking meditation, come straight bang into your leg, just to see if you're really upright and alert, or just pretending to be upright. You know, something like. Oh, and it just, or oh, if you put your plate down, eating, sort of sitting in the grass outside, and looked away for a moment, they'd come and help you clean it. You know, very, very noble and kind of them. Um, and then, in my delight and joy and love of these little beings, I suddenly realised, and it was a shock. It was like I thought they were the same puppies I'd been enjoying last year. And it was obvious, of course, in that moment of realizing that assumption that these are the same puppies as last. No, they can't be. Those puppies have grown up, or some of them have. Not all of them will have lived. But these puppies, and there was something in me that just kind of—what happened? It was like the sense of, wow, those puppies keep changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. Something. Animating those beings was just the same. The life that was pouring out of them and through them and shining in their eyes and their movement had not changed at all. And somehow I hadn't seen what was happening. It was humbling and really remarkably moving to sense directly what had happened to me there. What is it that doesn't change? When we don't define what we're encountering externally or internally, by the content of the experiences, by the smell, the taste, the color, the flavor, the sound, the shape, the image or the concept that arises in relationship to it. When we don't do that, and yet we let all of that wholeheartedness of commitment that previously might have gone into trying to find something or get somewhere, we allow that fullness and wholeness of, of being to simply abide. When we let go of the fascination with the things that are moving through, something in us can hear that, can know That there is more, and yet not more. Something other, and yet not other. Because it's just this. It's just this. Life is revealed. We could say awareness reveals life. And yet, when we use that word, and it's one we hear more and more often, It's so easy to think we're talking about something, to make a noun out of it, as I've mentioned to one or two in the groups or interviews. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's something happening. It's an action. It's not an entity. There's nothing we can point to and put our finger on. And yet, we know it. Or it's not even we know it. It knows. Knowing knows. And the knowing is in all that is known. It's not apart from it, happening to it. It's The knowing is in all that is known. The unfolding of life is known by life unfolding. And the the sense of looking, the seeking, the moving out towards, after, towards, or f- in search of, just quite naturally and organically dissolves back into itself. Because it's evident and apparent and incontrovertible that that which was being sought after is exactly that which is seeking. And the sense of there somehow being a separation between the two and a gap or a loss is, is a complete fiction, an illusion created by believing the story that we were telling about the movement of life. And that coming to rest in the suchness of things is the natural, inevitable effect of realizing that things are already at rest at the same time as they are moving. And that it's only when we think about it that somehow that creates a paradox. We have never been apart from that which we see. And so practice is simply not even returning home, but realizing the home that we have not left. It's not just that all our efforts don't get us any closer, which is kind of irritating. But in fact, they equally don't take us away. Rumi put it like this I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. So let's sit together right here. Ryokan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. May we all, through our practice and in our lives, awaken to the heart of the Buddha Dharma. Come to rest, fully conscious and awake in just this, For our well-being, for the welfare of all beings.